It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 is the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He is Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes as we're here to break down all that is happening with respect to the New York football Giants in multiple ways, as always, to interact with us here on the program. You give us a ring, 201-939-4513. Can't get to a phone. You could head to social media, hashtag Giants Chat. You could also directly interact with both of us on our own Twitter handles. And as a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So OTAs are continuing on Thursday. They're going to have another open media session. We're going to hear some of the players speak as well as Brian Dable. So that is something at least to look forward to in terms of the upcoming activities for this week. But I think today where I wanted to start off, Paul, is big picture perspective on the NFL front because the spring league meetings are going on this week. And this is an opportunity for the owners and the league as a whole to discuss some matters that relate to all teams, not necessarily a few. And Roger Goodell, the commissioner, spoke to reporters yesterday, and I thought a few interesting developments were brought up that clearly will impact the league as a whole. Number one, let's start with the combine, and there was a lot of speculation going back to this year's event that they're going to start rotating the event, that there's going to be a bidding that will take place, very similar to the Super Bowl, that they want to expose that to various different states and locations across the country, but they have now committed to having the Combine remain in Indianapolis for 2023 and 2024. What happens beyond that remains to be seen, but to me, this is just a practical move. Indy has housed this event forever. It's a central location from a geographical standpoint. I like this move, and I don't see why they should even entertain moving it around if it ain't broken at this point. Well, you know how big business impacts sure. things, Lance. And I guarantee you that the number one consideration when the NFL started talking about moving it around had to do with the fact that if they could get bidders to come in and give them outrageous fees to move it, that's what it was all about. There's nobody there who's going to say that Indianapolis does not do a good job hosting. They've got the medical facilities. They've got the hospitality facilities. It's centrally located uh, in the middle part of the country. Everybody who's involved with the National Football League knows that Indianapolis is the perfect place to do the combine. There's nothing wrong with it. They don't, they don't miss any boxes that need to be checked, except potentially the chance to raise more money by moving the damn thing around like a circus. But also, if you're going to move it around, and the reason I brought that up is there was, I know, some chatter about California, for example. What is the purpose of having the combine at a place where you don't have some closure to protection from weather? Because that goes on for days, Paul. At least in Indianapolis, it's indoors. So if it snows, God forbid... Or it pours. You don't have to worry about moving it to another location. You know, regardless of what Mother Nature has in store for you, you're going to be fine. That's the other thing that I never understood why you would entertain areas that may be a little bit more promising in terms of outside of the combine for people that are coming to enjoy themselves. But let's be honest, Paul, it's a business trip. All of these teams are going down there for a purpose. It's 24-7 interviewing prospects, putting them under the magnifying glass. What difference does it make what's going on in terms of the dog and pony show outside of the combine? Well, your your words a moment ago, it's a business trip. It, business trip means different things to different people. For the teams, the combine is a business trip to gauge and find out more about guys who they want to have in their organization and who they will need to continue building their program. But for the NFL, the combine is a business trip from the league office's perspective to produce revenue. And that's exactly why they've had the fan fest at the combine in recent years. I mean, I've been out there a number of times, did not go during the pandemic and, and did not go this year either, but they have, they have enhanced the fan experience with different displays, 
different events that they could participate in. Uh, that's that's what this is about. It, for, for them, the word business isn't about helping your football team win. It's about helping your bank account get larger. Sure. No, there's financial implications. But I will tell you this. Something tells me after all of these years, Paul, speaking of business, Indianapolis is not having the urge to let go of that event because it's great for their of economy. Of course not. Right? I mean, you have people from all across the country associated with NFL teams and, to your point, fans that come to Indianapolis. They can consistently bank on that. The restaurants, the hotels know, hey, it's going to be great for business. You take that away from Indianapolis, yes, some other city in town is going to benefit, but it's going to be a huge shot for Indianapolis to have to regroup and recover. Well, I would add one thing, Lance. Indianapolis, th- that convention center that's right across the street from Lucas Oil Stadium is just absolutely huge. I-, I I don't know what the square footage is, and I can't compare it to the Javits Center in New York. Uh, that's what I, I was going to throw. I was going to throw out the Javits Center as a means of comparison. Are, are the numbers somewhat similar? Have you looked at the, the size I haven't. Of the I mean, I could take a look at it, but I mean, if you know the Javits Center, which clearly you and I know both. I mean, that sucker takes up a number <laughs> of blocks in Manhattan, okay? Well, I mean, I go by it pretty yes. much on a daily basis. You so. feel like you could fit multiple stadiums into the building, right? Okay? So, <laughs> I mean, for, yeah, for those of you who have never been there, that's, that's like the best way I can describe it. Uh, it's like the most giant Home Depot warehouse that's like <laughs> totally empty with no rows and no shelves and no tools in it, okay? You know? Like like a mega mega airline hangar for like a whole slew of blimps. <laughs> That's kind of what it's like. Okay. Yes. All right. So here's the point. That is a mega hub, Indy, for conventions of all types, all around the season. In fact, all around the year. And when we're there for the NFL Combine, usually they've just finished up with one mega convention for something. And then usually right afterwards, there's like a tractor convention or um, farm equipment convention that's coming in. And I have to tell you something, Lance. The last two days of the combine, they're already prepping other parts of that building for the incoming convention with signage and with displays and, and starting to refit the rooms. Sure. So... Here's what I will say. Don't feel bad for Indianapolis if the NFL <laughs> well, pulls out yeah. <laughs> because they've got plenty of people, plenty of events, plenty of people, plenty of causes that can't wait to book that place that I got a hunch maybe it wouldn't be as fun as having the NFL around, but I have a hunch they would probably be able to fill those dates with something. Maybe it would be uh, – I don't know, an aluminum foil convention. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Sounds exhilarating, but, yes. But my point is, Indy will survive even if the NFL runs away. No, and that's a fair point. I just thought that it was a staple of that community and that town for so long that you get an idea of certain people come back, they go to locations, they have favorite restaurants, hotels. I guess that's what I was getting at. But there's no doubt about it. I'm sure somebody's foaming at the mouth to book that place during the week of the combine. Now, I have the measurements just to appease you, just to put in perspective, which was what I thought the Javits Center makes the Indianapolis Convention Center look tiny, okay? So the Javits Center is 814,400 total square feet of exhibit space because that's how they measure it. In addition to that, it has 65,000 square feet of dedicated registration space. Okay, so I said over 814,000 total square feet is the Javits Center when it comes to exhibit space. Indianapolis is 566,000 square feet. So, I mean, just think about how much additional wow. hundreds of thousands of square feet the Javits Center has, Paul, in comparison to the Indiana Convention Center. You know, to be fair, even though I've been around the Javits Center and I've seen it from the outside, I've never actually been inside of it. I have been inside the, the Indianapolis, obviously, Convention Center multiple times. In fact, quite frankly, it would not surprise you to know that I do many miles of walks in that place. Stunning. <laughs> I would have never guessed that. Yes, but when thank I'm, you. When I'm at the Combine, it, you may not believe this, I do 14 miles of power walking every day. 
when I'm at the Combine because I have so much fun being able to walk that city and to walk in the convention center at all kinds of hours. You can go in there, you know, before breakfast. You can go in there at 2 o'clock in the morning if you want, and it doesn't matter what the weather is because they have a skywalk and then the, the convention center itself. I just make so many multiple trips around that place. By the time my day is done, I got 14 miles in. It's it's awesome. It's very good for my it's health. the beauty of open space. Yes. I love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. So I kind of feel like that's my home away from home whenever I go to the Midwest. <laughs> uh, and it is the largest, according to what I'm reading, and who knew that the conversation was going to go in this direction, that we're going to learn more about the Indianapolis Convention Center than anything well, else. Well, you but, started it. No, I did. I blame myself. That's fine. I'll take full blame. It's the Midwest's largest ballroom, in case anybody was interested. I know a lot of people, especially who listen to this podcast, woke up today wondering, you know, what's the biggest ballroom in the Midwest? Okay, well, now you go to sleep tonight knowing that uh, you have that intel. And I'm going to give you one more yes. piece of intel, Lance, and this is so critical to our trivia uh, conversation today. FedEx has their largest airline hub in Indianapolis as well. <laughs> Which would make sense. No, but, well, in all seriousness, though, you would probably want a hub right in the Midwest, so this way it's equidistant to both exactly. sides of the country. exactly. So it's practical from that standpoint. One other thing that I wanted to add, because you mentioned you had not been in the Javits Center. The Javits Center, the one time that I recall being in there for an event is in 1998 when the NBA had its all-star game at Madison Square Garden. Right. So the Knicks hosted it. They had the Fan Fest, okay, at the Javits Center the days leading up to the All-Star game where you could, you know, take part in events and buy merchandise. So as a Knicks season ticket holder, my dad and I, we went to the Javits Center for that event. You know, season ticket holders were given, I think, we were able to go a day early. And, I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was a spectacular showing, especially, you know, I was extremely passionate about basketball. I, we had a shooting contest I took part in. So, I mean, it was quite the setup. And the reason why they used that is because of what we're talking about, all the – Square okay. footage All right, that they out. had at their disposal. Time out. Yes. I got to go back to one thing you just said a minute ago. I did not know you were a Knicks season ticket holder. Oh, yeah. Which, of course, infuriates the hell out of me because <laughs> you were the one guy in the garden during the Jordan years actually rooting for Jordan when the Correct. Knicks should have been kicking his butt all over the court. Yes, absolutely. Well, my dad's a Knicks fan, so... Well, he's I mean, a good man. What no, happened to you? you what happened to me is I pick winners. See, that's what happened Oh, to me. So, man. You know, Jordan's a winner, so by default, the team came with the baggage. That's the rest of the case. Shall we yes. move on? Yes, we shall move on, because I don't think you want to go there. I don't. Because you know it's not going to end very well for you. <laughs> no, 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 So no. you wisely change the topic, and I will <laughs> gladly cooperate Lance, when it with comes, respect when to When it comes to yes. Michael Jordan, I don't have enough bandages in this warehouse to possibly cover up all the blood. Yes, well said. Well, speaking of at least other topics that we could transition to, speaking of all-star games, this actually is a beautiful segue. That brings us to the Pro Bowl. That was the other thing that Roger Goodell brought up. Yes. And this was the first time, not that these conversations, Paul, have not happened previously, but he publicly flat-out admitted that the Pro Bowl is broken. I'm paraphrasing the words. It just it doesn't work. So they are having very passionate conversations about what could be done to really either get rid of it or completely revamp it because the players obviously do not want to go out and play a typical football game where tackling is involved. And I guess I get that. It's the end of the season. Guys that are banged up probably don't even want to participate. How many replacements, Paul, right, on an annual basis do we have to calculate? Meaning the guys that initially make the Pro Bowl roster don't even play, so you're going to alternative B, alternative C. All of these alternates actually wind up playing. So I get it that they're at the point where there really is no point of return. But I think what they should start considering is, A, I would be all for, if they want to play flag football, at least you know going in, Paul, that you're not getting a typical football game. I think the players will be more animated and more passionate to go full force because they know they don't have to tackle. So that would be one option I would right. be willing to adopt. The other option is... I would take the night before when they have all these skills competitions. I understand they play kickball or dodgeball, but they also, you know, they have a passing proficiency. Why not expand that? I mean, there are so many different things that players go through in practice. If you really doll it up and you have some organization, you could have like a two-day event of just skills competitions. I'd be more than content with just doing that. Showcase the guys who are all-stars that season and have them compete against one another in individual efforts. 
Yeah, I, I think that's probably a good idea. I, I do wonder, though, how many of those guys would even pull out of those things. Really? You think, though, they pull sometimes, out of Sometimes. Sometimes you will hear. For example, I remember when uh, when the Pro Bowl was annually in Hawaii before they started moving it around a little bit to the uh, to the other locations in recent years. And they used to have uh, volleyball and they used to have uh, flag football in the sand uh, they had a tug of war. They used sure. to have some of those things. They weren't necessarily NFL skills competitions. They were more like beach games. Yeah. And they would have the, the pro bowlers participate. And, of course, there were guys who were afraid that they might injure something, pull a muscle, do something bad. In fact, I, I can't remember his name now. There was a Bengals tight end who blew out his knee uh, on one of those sand games right before the Pro Bowl, and I wish I could remember his name now. He was a pretty good player, and he blew out his knee, and his career was never the same. And he, and he, within a couple of years, I'm pretty sure he was out of the league. Or, what, or was it a Patriots running back now? Man, I I'm, remember, well, you could be confusing the teams. Uh, I'm trying to look that up. I'm not finding a Bengals tight end. I'll look up a Patriots running back. I recall, I know there was, I believe, a running back. I don't remember what team. I don't think it was associated with the Pro Bowl. I just think he was taking part in some exhibition, maybe a celebrity, to your point, a game on the sand. And I remember him blowing out his knee. Well, and, and But that's what I'm getting at is that yeah. sometimes these extracurricular activities – uh, I know the odds are are very much against somebody getting hurt in one of those things, but it has happened, and and I and I do believe that there have been a number of cases where these things wind up getting televised, you know, on ESPN or yeah. FS1 or whatever it is, and you'll watch it and you'll like, well, what are those guys doing there? And it's because most of the bigger names opted out for whatever reason. So I don't I don't know if there's enough validity to make that work the way you want it to work. And, and, I, and I like your idea. I think if you could get all the top A-listers to participate in those skills things, I do think that would be more fun, and, and I would certainly be interested. Well, because, once again, I'm thinking of the premise of it's sports entertainment. I mean, that's the whole point of an all-star game. While we want to see some competitiveness – but at the end of the day, it's about entertaining. The Pro Bowl has gotten to the point where it's no longer entertaining because you could tell the offensive linemen, Paul, and the defensive linemen, and I mean, I don't even know if you've cared to tune into it here or there over the years, but I mean, they're at the point where they're telling you flat out they have no interest in blocking one another. They basically just stand there in a shadow blocking, if you want to call it that, and then even in the open field, when a guy gets a pass, very little effort. So if you have no interest in doing that, what's a way where you can get the competitive juices rolling and also make it fun and entertaining? Mm -hmm. And I think maybe we just remove the concept of an actual football game and we bring in other competitions that are using skill sets related to the game, but you're doing it in a way where the players don't fear injury, to your point, and viewers would have no problem tuning in. Now, I wouldn't go so far to say let's have competitions on sand. I would want to have the majority of the competitions on an actual football field, Paul, because I'd want it to duplicate what you'd be practicing. Now, if you want to take it to a degree of you want to have like a softball game or you want to have a dodgeball game, which they already have, okay, that would be involving things that are unrelated to football. But I still think you can actually – you could play a softball game on a football field. You'd have to obviously configure – sure. The field accordingly, but it's not like you have to go to the beach, I guess my point is, or other locations to have some of these competitive events. I found the guy, former Patriots running back Robert Edwards, okay, seriously hurt in the 1999 uh, sand flag football game leading into the Pro Bowl. Tore ligaments in his left knee, the ACL, the MCL, the PCL, and partially his LCL tendon as well. And suffered major nerve damage, all because of a flag football game that was part of the Pro Bowl festivities. Robert Edwards. Yeah. But that was also on the sand. Yes, it was. And I'm not a doctor, but I think it's fair to connect the dots that that platform, okay, did not necessarily help the cause. Now, that's not to say he wouldn't have tore up his knee if he was actually on a football field, but if you're going to do these events, do it on a surface 
that these players are at least familiar with testing their athleticism, I think, throughout the course of the season. In, in a bubble, I'm with you, Lance. I, I don't I don't really have any issues with what you're saying. I do think, though, there will be teams, trainers, agents sure. who will still be gun-shy and just say, look, the better part of valor here, let's, let's not risk – you know, our $35 million quarterback or our $23 million pass rusher yep. doing any events other than tiddlywinks and Madden football. <laughs> you know no, what I mean? And, and I get that. But in fairness, Paul, they could get hurt in even the regular Pro Bowl game. You're Can right. Not? Right? You're I mean, absolutely so, right. You know, well, I, I, I'm, I'm not disagreeing yeah. with No, I'm not saying you, you are. I'm just saying no matter how you spin it, I guess my point is there's always the risk of injury. And and there will be those people on the other side with the most to lose if there is an injury who will raise their hand and scream as loud as they can from the top of the mountains that I don't want my guy doing this. And I just wonder, you know, how many of those do you need to take away the headline value and the star value of a competition? Because once you do that, it certainly dilutes it. And I'm with you there. That's why you have to create an atmosphere. And this is where I think it's important, Paul, to get feedback from the star players now. Like, don't implement the change to the game and then you find out. A few months later, right? <laughs> exactly. These guys have no interest doing That's it. That's true. Right? I mean, you present 100%. It, yeah, present it to the union now and say, guys, if we're going to go in this direction, how many of you, you're exhausted. You played 17 games. You may have made the playoffs. You got eliminated in the first round. If we bring you back at the end of January to take part in the Pro Bowl and we do it this way, would you be willing to participate? And get the read of the room. I mean, that's what I would do because yeah. I understand there is going to be some hesitancy. I want to throw out one other thing to maybe perhaps, not that you're not sold on this, you're at least open to it. I was having this conversation coincidentally with former Giants running back Shane Vereen this morning on Sirius XM NFL Radio, and we said, okay, what if you leave the Pro Bowl the way it is, Okay, but you force, and this is really thinking outside the box, very creative. Once again, I'm thinking about the entertainment standpoint. Offensive players have to be defensive players. Defensive players become offensive players. And by the way, I would be a proponent of flag football under this circumstance, meaning I don't want offensive guys tackling defensive guys and hurting <laughs> okay. themselves. No, but my, my point <laughs> is, is that you expose the skill set of guys. Because you remember, there's a lot of players in high school who are football players. They're two-way players. They play right. defense and offense, but then once they get right. to college in the NFL, they have to focus on one area. So why not reminisce, go back in the day and force guys to flip the script a little. Or, you know, Odell Beckham, for example, he was so talented. Remember, he liked to kick field goals. Let him kick a little bit for an extra point here or there. Have some fun. That was something that we were at least entertaining that I thought was interesting. And then when he rips his hamstring. Well, of course, I know that. you're always going to bring it back to the injuries. Yeah, I know that. I know you're always going to bring it back to the No, injuries. no, again, yeah. I'm, I'm not taking that stance. I'm giving you the other side of the coin because it'll be there. And I look, ultimately... Ultimately, I understand the people who don't care about the Pro Bowl. When I was younger and it was more competitive, uh, I did care a lot more about it than I do now, I, I have to confess. And I do like the skills competitions when they do that uh, with, the, with the passing, you know, through the different targets and the receivers run the different routes and, and, and some of those things. I... I'm into that stuff. I think it's kind of fun. It's lighthearted. It gives you a chance to, you know, see the guys a little bit of their personalities and some of the superstars, you know, doing some of this stuff. I'm all for it. It's it's kind of entertaining. You don't go out of your way to necessarily watch it as appointment television. But Correct. if it's on, you probably leave it on for a good half hour and watch some of it. So so I'm with you. I I I don't want to see the Pro Bowl go away or the skills competitions go away. I, I don't know, though, because of the money that's involved now and the risk, uh, so much of what was done 25, 30, 35 years ago just doesn't seem to be feasible anymore because of attitudes and people getting too scared and gun-shy. And that's always going to be the concern. That's why I keep going back to you have to have the conversation beforehand because you don't want to implement it and then find out nobody's on board. But I think you brought up an interesting point, Paul, about whether or not people would be fascinated with watching the Pro Bowl in this day and age or the skills competitions because times have changed, the short attention span, it's not necessarily a meaningful game. But here's why I think if you had a very detailed skills competition – 
whether people are consuming it live or after the fact, I think there would be interest. I'm going to give you a perfect example in-house here. And it reminded me of this when you were talking about it that way. The Giants yesterday, okay, the team put up, I don't know if you saw this, two days ago, excuse me, they put up a, a shot of Daniel Jones at practice rolling to his right and then throwing into a net. I don't yeah. know if you saw that, Paul. Okay. Now, once again, I'm not one of those big social media maniacs where likes and retweets matter. But <laughs> if you go to the video, okay, right. just to give you a ballpark figure, there have been over 213,000 views of a clip that is, what, eight seconds long? Okay? So my point is, Paul, if you could get over 213,000 people to click on an eight-second video of Daniel simply just throwing towards a net, okay? No disrespect to Daniel Jones. He literally threw the ball into a net. He didn't do anything that was above and beyond. Right. If you could get that type of volume and reaction, mm. then I would feel pretty good about people consuming a skills competition at the Pro Bowl. Actually, 212,000 of those clicks were writers trying to find out <laughs> if they could see which player wasn't there or injured and could not participate in well, a meaningless voluntary workout in the middle of May. Unfortunately, there were about like two players and two coaches in the shot. Ah, there you go. And so, I guarantee yes. you they were, they were tweeting them out too. That's a lot of clicks for an investigation, by the way. Yeah, but yes, you know, go ahead. This is yeah. what they do. You know, I, I, I understand there's such an appetite for the National Football League because, as I said over a decade ago, uh, baseball is not America's pastime anymore. The National not Football League is by far the number one sport, you know, in the United States, for sure. Now, whether or not you could want to talk about the U.K. because of the expansion and the international games, uh, I know it's growing over there, but obviously soccer is still going to be number one. Canada, hockey's always going to be number one, but but I know there's a lot of NFL fans up in Canada, even though they have the CFL. Uh, no, as far as the United States goes, the National Football League rules. It, they're, they're one, two, three, four, and five, okay? Everybody else takes a backseat to the NFL. And six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, just to complete <laughs> the set as we move along here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here. We've been talking about some of the conversations that came up at the spring league, league meetings as Roger Goodell addressed reporters. We're also going to delve into some Giants-related topics, too. A few reminders. Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2022 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seats starting at just $100. Call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Also... Don't miss your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giants games and world-class concerts in 2022 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available, or you can place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925 as well, or for this one, you can visit Giants.com slash suites for more information. We've also been getting some return on social media to some of our previous shows this week and I wanted to delve into this Paul because if you recall earlier in the week we were having a conversation about Daniel Jones and the importance of this season and how he's going to be put certainly under a microscope as the Giants will then have to determine whether or not they want to give him the franchise tag or a short-term deal we were going over all of the ins and outs of that conversation and somebody brought up an interesting point about the durability topic. This is coming from Sean. Quote, it's a legitimate question to pose about Jones's durability, but those who are certain Jones can't stay healthy, just look to Phil Sims early. Bad luck, significant part of Jones's injuries were on the run. Hopefully those will only be to keep teams honest and not the offense. So the point that he's bringing up is twofold. He's saying, Look at Phil Simms, who dealt with some injuries early in his career. But, you know, once again, the injuries then even, you could say, continued in and out of the lineup. And it was also a very different time just in terms of the market value for quarterbacks and the salary cap and all that comes with that. So that I wanted to throw out here before I get your response, Paul. And then as far as the point about, well, hopefully just Jones and the injuries he suffered in the past is going to keep teams on their toes because they're going to have to anticipate he's running. But here's the thing. I think we were talking about this with respect to 
a conversation about you need to throw the ball deep here or there, right, to keep the defense honest. If it gets to the point where your quarterback no longer runs, defenses are going to wind up getting a better read, and they're not going to consider that a threat. Mm-hmm. So you're always going to have to walk the fine line of we do not want to expose our player to the same level of hits like a Josh Allen, but at the same time, if we know he has that skill set, he's going to have to run here or there just to at least keep the defense honest. Well, you guys all know on this program about how I feel with running quarterbacks. I don't mind a guy who's got escapability. I don't mind if he's going to have to run three or four times during the course of a game. I really have issues with the risk of having the legs of the quarterback being a significant part of the offense to where, you know, I remember when Bobby Douglas of the Bears, like 50 years ago, you know, ran for a thousand yards. Your quarterback should never be running for a thousand yards. He should never be the leading rusher uh, for your team. You know, if it happens once during the season, oh my God, okay, it happened once. But that's not something you want. I'm sorry. That's just not a good idea. And I'm I'm not going to move off of that, no matter how many athletic quarterbacks there are in the game today. All right, how many Super Bowls has Lamar Jackson won? Okay, I, I get it. I get it. He's dynamic. He's fun to watch. He does give people problems. He does have a certain level of success. But you want sustained contendingship. You want to win Super Bowl rings. That's not the kind of quarterback you want. I'm sorry. Yes, you want to have some escapability, and you do want to have some mobility. But that can't be a major focus of your attack. So I'm hoping, for one, that Daniel Jones does limit the amount of running that he does. Now, Phil Simms, who is my all-time guy, number one, man. He's number 11, but he's number one for me, right? Number one in your hearts. Phil, your Phil, yes. Phil, says, Phil says to me, and he counters me, and Phil goes, I know I was hurt a lot earlier in my career, but that's because of the shots I was taking in the pocket. Because it's the shots that you don't see, the blindside hits and the crushing, enveloping smashes that come at you in the pocket. Those are the ones that cause the worst injuries. Phil's always said to me, you know, if you're scrambling and you're running around, you can control what's going to happen to you because your eyes are on a swivel. You're watching what's happening. You see where the hits are coming from. You can get out of bounds. You can get down. You could curl up when you get hit. Phil is always of the opinion, and I understand this, and it makes some sense, that you're probably safer getting hit while you're on the move taking the ball downfield than you are standing in the pocket and having some guy put his helmet right in the back of your spine. I I, I get it. I absolutely get that. And chances are, too, they're probably going to take your legs out a hell of a lot easier if you're standing in the pocket, too. So... I, I do understand Phil's point. It makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, from, from a guy who played the position very well for so long and certainly endured a ton of injuries, but I will also add this other item. And I've never challenged Phil on this, and maybe someone will clip this out and send it to him on Twitter. Um, I, I one day Don't I give will, him any ideas, but well, go ahead. Uh, yes. Who knows? But, but I'll have to have this conversation with Phil because early in his career, Phil was a scrambler. Now, he wasn't a Frank Tarkenton, don't get me wrong, but Phil ran around a lot during the first couple of years when he came to the Giants as a rookie in 1979. And after the plethora of injuries he had the first three or four years of his career, he became a pocket passer. And he cut down significantly on his running. Now, part of that was because they didn't need him to as the team started to get better. The line was better. The running game was better, you know, so he wasn't in as much duress that he had to necessarily run as much. But ultimately, isn't that what you want, Lance? You want your team to be good enough so that you don't have to entertain risky propositions like your quarterback running the ball 10 to 15 times and trying to run for a thousand yards in a season. Wouldn't you rather not have to risk that if you didn't have to? No. I'm completely with you. I don't love the idea of exposing your quarterback to all those extra hits. Now, listen, Paul, if somebody has proven that they can take those hits, for example, Josh Allen is cut from a very different cloth than Daniel Jones. I have said this he's over a tight and over end. again. He's, Correct. he's a tight end. Look at so, him. Yeah, so I think you as a coaching staff, you're saying to yourself, okay, hey, Josh has proven He's built that he could handle those hits. So maybe I'll give him a little bit more wiggle room. Daniel has not proven that, and Daniel's not built like Josh Allen. So right. my ideology, if I'm Brian Dable, and 
Kafka comes from the school of thought of Mahomes, who also is certainly not built like Josh Allen, and he's a smaller guy. I cannot adopt that philosophy. I have to think very differently. So, no, I would absolutely not subscribe to the Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen school of thought when it comes to Daniel Jones because of his makeup and because of his lack of track record in remaining on the field. Well, look at it this way, okay? Um, Josh Allen has played, uh, what, 60, was it 61 games over the course of his career? Yeah, 61 games. I'm looking this up right now. And and these are facts, folks. This is not something we're just, we're just plucking out of thin air. 61 games played. He has a total combined rushing attempt of 422. So if you take 422 and divide that by 61, that is an average of seven rushing attempts per game. For me, that's a little too high. But at least he's not taken off 9, 10, 11 times a game. I still think it would be too high for me. I'd like it to be down just a little bit. But to your point, he is sturdy. I mean, this guy is a horse. Uh, And so good for him. Uh, You know how much I pushed him as the best quarterback in his draft class when he came out. I was absolutely sold that he was going to be a star and a franchise player. And he's turned out to be. Okay, but (sighs) I didn't really necessarily – want him to be running, you know, seven, eight, nine times a game either. In comparison, since we are throwing out some numbers, I just did the math with Daniel Jones. Jones comes in at about four and a half runs per game if you take all of his carries over the course of three seasons. And that's about the max for me. I would not want it to be more than four a game. Yeah, and you could argue with his track record, you know, you got to be even cautious with that four territory. Now, once again, I don't want to take away a weapon and a skill set from Daniel, but I want to go back to a point you brought up, which I thought was interesting, Paul, when you mentioned Phil said, well, the reason why he got hurt early in his career was because he actually stayed in the pocket, but it was the hits that he wasn't anticipating. Daniel, if you look at his injuries— the injuries weren't necessarily Daniel hanging out in the pocket. No, Daniel's they Daniel's injuries, right, okay, were the opposite of Phil, where— He's, his, if his point is, Paul, it helps you when you're scrambling because you can see it, you can anticipate it. Well, that didn't necessarily apply to Daniel because I think the problem with Daniel is Daniel has to come to grips with the fact, I'll just take the two yards. Don't go for the six because when you start thinking I got to go for the six, the guys are very quick on the defensive side of the ball. Just when you think you have an extra half a step that could get you an extra yard, they're there, and they meet you, and then you don't have time to slide. Or you decided, I'm not going to run out of play because I'm going to try to take an extra few yards, and then all of a sudden you get hit. So it's maybe Daniel has a better idea of seeing it, unlike Phil, but I think Daniel still needs to fully understand it's not worth going for the lousy extra two yards if it keeps me off the field in the big picture. I concur. Daniel needs to understand a, a, a better um... – a better type of, uh, of approach to when he takes off. If he's going to go vertical and go downfield, he needs to have a better understanding of when to give up on the play, when to get down, how to slide. Okay, yep. We know like Eli Manning, he is not really good at the baseball slide, and he needs to, and he needs to do that. Uh, you know, Get out of bounds, know how to curl up and take the hit. Now, Eli was awesome at that. He was Gumby back there. Eli knew how to take hits and how to be durable you know I remember Jim Brown used to rip Franco Harris uh, as Franco was was attacking his all-time career rushing record in NFL history and Jim Brown would just mercifully criticize Franco Harris saying look how many times he runs out of bounds every time he gets near the sideline he sees a hit coming he runs out of bounds and Franco would say well that's how I help my team with my durability being able to stay on the field so that I can live for another play and another week. And Jim Brown's opinion was, being the hard-nosed old-timer that he was, uh, I'm fighting for every single extra yard that I can get on every single snap. And I'm not letting anybody get off easy. I'm going to deliver the blow, and I'm going to punish a defender anytime he comes up to tackle me. Well, Jim Brown was like, an android, okay? I mean, this guy never missed games for injury, played almost a decade, retired when he was still the best running back in football, 
And that's why I have no dispute with saying he's the all-time greatest running back that's ever played the game because the level that he played at for as long as he did, showing the durability that he did, he he is a one, one in a 500 million trillion guys who would be able to pull that off the way he pulled it off because, as we all know, outside of maybe, I guess, Emmett Smith, Frank Gore, a handful of guys sure. who have been able to do it forever – uh, running backs do take an awful lot of punishment. Yeah, they take a beating. I mean, let's face it. Let's not beat around the bush here. They're going into the trenches on a daily basis, unlike any other player with the exception of, obviously, the offensive lineman and the defensive lineman. So that's why you have to be smart. Longevity and smarts go hand in hand, Paul, when it comes to the National Football League. The guys that prioritize taking care of their body without, obviously, sacrificing their competitive nature and the well-being of the team. So... Are you looking for being the tough guy that's going to make some random clip on social media that you ran over two or three guys? Or did you run out of play and then the guy who tried to be the acrobat is on the sideline being a spectator for the last three games of the season and you're playing? I'd rather have the guy that's accessible, that's able to play. So, you know, this applies once again to the conversation we're having with Daniel Jones. The other thing that I wanted to add where I slightly disagree with Phil Sims is... Basically, his differentiation, Paul, between it's better when you're a runner as opposed to a pocket guy because you can anticipate hits. Well, what happens if you're a running quarterback, Paul, and you get hammered from behind? That can't happen, right? I mean, it you can. can't. I, you, think but you Phil, can't. I think Phil's playing the percentages, though. I sure, think that's no, what he's talking about. No, I get that. But what I'm saying is, and I don't necessarily think of an example right now that comes to mind, but I guarantee you if I reviewed enough film – I could find you a quarterback running out into the open field, and it's not the guy in front of him that he sees. It's the guy from behind that brings him down. So you're still putting yourself at risk for a blindside hit even when you're a runner. Now, granted, to your point, it may not be a very high percentage, but I wouldn't say that it 100% better protects you when you're scrambling unless you know when to give up your body. And I think there's a lot of quarterbacks that are cut from the cloth of, I got to show I'm tough, I got to sell myself to my teammates, and I don't want to be the guy that's going to run out of play if I can get a few extra yards. Mm -hmm. And while, once again, it may appear from an optic standpoint, you get commended right there on the spot, if you're then having to watch your teammates play in the latter part of the season when they really need you, what good is being on a clip that is circulated and is not necessarily connected to winning football? No, I very fair, very fair. And ultimately, as we all could attest to, we have all seen situations, and whatever the odds are, there are going to be situations that occur that will disprove the odds or that will go against the odds and we'll be like, oh, see, I remember that. Because usually it's that rarity that sticks in your mind even more so than the common. And Lance so, Biddle, you know, yeah, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. No, I and that's, and yeah. I think that's, that's part of the problem a lot of times. Uh, but I, I will say this. Uh, in closing this, this topic, I will say this. The, the one thing that we do know is that today's players are certainly stronger uh, they're more agile. They're quicker. I mean, the combine numbers prove the athleticism of today's player compared to the player when Phil Simms was, was involved in the game. I don't think there's any doubt about that. So if you wanted to talk about the fact that the athleticism has improved to such a degree that maybe Phil's theory from when he played doesn't hold as much beef, I suppose that might be something that you could, you could throw on the fire a little bit and say, well, you know, you think as a quarterback that you can control how you're going to get hit or, or how it's going to impact you when you're on the run. Well, like you just said a minute ago, since guys are bigger, stronger, faster, uh, maybe when they're coming at you from the side or coming at you from behind, uh, you might have been able to see them 25, 30 years ago when you were running downfield. But maybe now you can't because they're getting there that much quicker. And if they're that much quicker, uh, you might want to get, get squashed. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the gap I'm referring to, that gap between the defense catching up with a quarterback that has some speed and mobility. Yeah. I don't think it's huge. I mean, yeah. how, how many linebackers, you know, in, in Phil's day could run 4-4? Exactly. You know, 
And and hell, we got some defensive linemen running four fives today. And today, that means you run 10 yards downfield on a scramble out of the pocket. There is a chance, a real chance, that they will catch you from behind. Back when Phil played, much less of a chance. 201-939-4513. That is the telephone number. Can't get to a phone. You can hit us up on Twitter, hashtag Giants Chatter. You could also obviously directly tweet at us on our own Twitter handles. We certainly appreciate that tweet that I read because that was actually in reaction to a conversation that we had on the show earlier in the week and also goes back to the conversation Jeff and I had on last Friday's show where we really put Daniel Jones under the magnifying glass because it goes without saying this is a significant season, but A lot of our analysis of Daniel is not so much about what he's going to do from a statistical standpoint. It's really centering around availability. And this goes to a much bigger perspective when you look at quarterbacks and team success. Now, I'm not a quarterback record guy, okay? I think that's been well documented, and I'm not somebody that just throws all the other items to the wayside, okay? There's so many other factors that go into having team success, but... I think what also you can certainly tally effectively is that when you lose your starter, the chances of your offense and the chances of your team overall having that same level of hoping in the consistency department will come to fruition dissipates or it takes a hit to a certain degree. I mean, you could look at all the teams, Paul, around the NFL. Maybe not so much last year, but it was the previous year where think about all the star quarterbacks that got hurt and how much those teams were impacted. That was the year, if you remember, Paul, where we had Drew Brees got hurt and the Saints. Granted, Teddy Bridgewater did a really nice job in filling in, but not every team has a polished veteran that they could turn to. Years where Aaron Rodgers got hurt, that almost completely wiped the Packers away from the conversation. I mean, we could sit here and go through quarterback after quarterback. It's one of the reasons why the Giants look to improve the depth chart in that department. That was number one. But they also, they don't want to go through another season where you're already saying to yourself, Daniel's going to be a spectator for two to three games at minimum. Because Those two to three games, even with the additional playoff team that you're throwing in the mix, and now it's seven in each conference, that could be the difference between A, staying relevant, or for teams that are perhaps in a much better position than the Giants, that could very well be the difference between being that eighth-seeded team versus getting that seventh and final spot in your respective conference. I hate to really go here, Lance. You're going to make me do it. This goes all the way back to how much money you're paying the starting quarterback in the salary cap. Well, I mean, I I don't think we need to delve into that, though, to make the point here, Paul. I I, I don't want to go there, but again, when when your money, your cap money, is so out of balance because you're paying that starting guy so much, well, it's only natural that if that guy goes down with a significant injury, your chances of winning games goes down as well. That's just a fact. So I agree with your premise. Whether or not you or I uh, agree 100% on some of the reasoning why, that's another story. But your premise is totally correct. Starting quarterback goes down, it it significantly hampers your ability to win games. Well, the reason why I didn't factor money in here is, from the Giants' perspective, it's not a money conversation, Paul, right? I mean, Daniel's on a rookie contract. I'm not saying that he's getting paid crumbs, but he's not at the point— no, where you're, no, no, you're eating right. up a lot of cap space in, from the, the Giants' in, standpoint. In, in, in the Giants' case, yo, your quarterback is not taking up a huge percentage of your salary cap. That is correct. So in this particular instance, I'm with you a thousand percent. This would not be something that would be uh, an impact or a result, I should say, of an economic strapping by the salary cap. But there are many teams out there at least a dozen or so that are paying their quarterbacks thirty million and up. Of course, and you I mean, know that's what? The yeah, and that that yeah, that's the market. And I don't again, I don't want no, to spend and that five has hours limitations. on this. No, I get that, but that's but why that's I, what happens. Well, but that's the reason why I didn't bring up money because if we're going to have just a conversation about the Giants in comparison to the rest of the league, there are a lot of teams that have quarterbacks on rookie contracts that I would argue could easily afford to spend a little bit more money on the depth chart. Case in point, Paul Zach Wilson got hurt last year for the Jets. Right, he missed some time. Now the Jets weren't necessarily a team overall that had its act together. They had other questions. 
question marks. But, you know, they weren't able to develop Zach Wilson as much as they wanted. Okay, so they had a veteran or two that was playing behind him. But Zach's on a rookie contract. What about when Joe Burrow, not last year, the year before, he went down with that Mm -hmm. serious knee injury. He Mm -hmm. was on a rookie contract. So the point is I'm referencing teams where you lost your quarterback on a manageable economic basis. It wasn't that you didn't necessarily have the ability to go out and spend on a serviceable backup. It was just that your season took a hit by default because you're not going to be able to duplicate your starter in the NFL. Hmm. I do believe we have a technical issue. We will try to get Lance back. Look, the days of having Phil Simms, Jeff Hostetler, and Jeff Rutledge as the three quarterbacks on your active roster are long, long gone. We all know that. It's just not feasible because of the economics of the cap and the way free agency works. All of his else. three seasons. Oh, there you go. You're back now, Lance. We, we got you back. We you lost, lost you there. there. We, can you we, hear me now? We, we did lose you during, okay. your la- during your last comment. But you, there's no question that there are a number of teams, like you said, when the, they've got the younger quarterbacks on the cheaper deals, they would be in the same quicksand uh, in terms of having to survive, if you will, or thrive is maybe even a better word. How do you thrive when your starting quarterback is knocked out for a month or so? It's it's difficult, and that's just the way it is because, as I, I was saying to you when, when I, we thought you got knocked off, you know, the days of having a Phil Sims, Jeff Hostetler, and Jeff oh. Rutledge on the roster are gone. Yep, That's just not, that's not happening in, in today's game. It's impossible. Now, again, I will say that's cap-related, but it's irrelevant. The truth is, it's just not the reality. Well, and that's why, circling back to where we started with this conversation and going back to the tweet that we received, Daniel Jones's durability, when you're ranking the things and the elements that are in play in terms of what is so significant before we even analyze the touchdown-to-interception ratio is... How many games can you bank on him being under center to start a game? Okay, that's the first conversation that has to be had. And when we look back and we, a year from now, we're going to step back and evaluate the 2022 season. Whatever happens with Daniel Jones, I guarantee you a big start to that conversation is going to be how many games volume-wise was he actually in a Giants uniform? Because that's what we've been talking about every single offseason. And I think that everybody, everybody, whether you like or don't like Daniel Jones, would have to agree they would love to see him start at least a minimum of 15 games this season so that we can get some type of true gauge as to where he's at. If he if he's only able to start ten games, that is a huge huge problem because I, I don't know what possible circumstances could occur unless he was throwing for four hundred yards a game over those ten games, whereby you could have any sense of certainty that he would be the guy. Was on a record pace, you're saying, and then all of a sudden an injury occurred mm-hmm. or something to that degree. I, I just don't. Yeah. I, it would take extremely impossible. I don't want to say impossible. Extremely difficult circumstances for him to be able to give you any sense of confidence if he only plays 10 games. I just don't know how that would happen. 201-939-4513. That is the telephone number. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here on Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We've been delving into a variety of different topics. Let's see if we could squeeze in a call or two before we wrap up shop. And Alex is in Syracuse. He joins us here. What's happening, Alex? Hey, guys. Thanks for taking the call. How are you doing? Doing very well. What do you got for us? Good. Uh, I got a question, but real quick, I think I can help uh, clear up the Phil Sims getting hit from behind debate real quick. Uh, I played quarterback in middle school and high school, so I'm not claiming anything like NFL. But I will say, the, the issue isn't just getting hit from behind and not seeing it. The difference from getting hit in the pocket and getting hit from behind running is that you're at a standstill. It's the force. where You can hurt an ankle running and getting hit from behind, I think, as a quarterback getting mm-hmm. out of the pocket. But if you're on the run and you're already moving in that direction – Getting hit, even if you don't see it coming, is not the same as just getting hit blindsided, standing in the pocket. 
Uh, but again, I've never played at a higher level than high school, but I've, I've had it at the high school level. I'm telling you, those two hits are real different. So to defend Phil for a minute. Well, and, like and, that. that's, and that's great. And I, I appreciate the perspective. I, I will say this. <laughs> when guys are at least 250 pounds plus, or maybe <laughs> some of these linemen are 300 pounds plus, I got a feeling it hurts either way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I understand your parallel, Alex, about high school and middle school, and that's fine, but – with the level of athleticism, and that's what Paul and I were talking about earlier, I really don't think it matters whether you're standing still or running. If you put a big defensive lineman behind Daniel Jones and he's running and he jumps on his back and puts him flat yeah. down on the ground, you're still at a risk of a major injury that could get you out of the season. Of course. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no disagreement there. Uh, here's my question for you guys. Kind of a strange question, but... Considering the salary cap situation this year and the moves that I think they've made, which I think have been great so far, bringing in some veterans and obviously the, the draft, I was starting to look at it. Do you think it's fair to say that maybe on some level, in the back of Shane and Dabble's mind, obviously they're playing to win. They always play a win. But it seems to me like maybe they've front-loaded on the offense a little bit more maybe even than the defense, which, again, I think if the idea is that we're testing out Jones this year, maybe the hope is you let him take some shots, and even if they're able to put some more points up on the board on the offense, if the defense is playing a sort of Martindale blitz scheme, maybe they allow some more points. And, again, I know it seems crazy because nobody's out here trying to lose games, but if you're thinking you might need to move on from Daniel and you're thinking about draft capital for next year, are you maybe a little more willing to give up some more points on defense this year with the hope that your offense can make up the difference as sort of a test for Daniel? I know it's a little out there, uh, but I just wanted to pose that question to you. I'll, I'll take the answer off the air. And appreciate the phone call, Alex. Well, my response, Paul, to that statement would be, and I was interpreting it as he was saying that there was a little bit more activity and movement in free agency and the draft on the offensive side of the ball than the defensive side of the ball. To me, I think that's just a product. You had a number of free agents on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, think about it. Your entire tight end, your entire tight end mm -hmm. group okay, hit the market. You knew there were a few guys on the offensive line that also had expiring contracts. And you had some injuries within the receiving core where maybe some guy's status were up in the air in addition to what you went through with the backup quarterback situation last year after Daniel got hurt. Sure. I just think based on how the mathematics played out with respect to the salary cap, that's why there seemed to be more of an emphasis on addressing the offense more so than the defensive side of the ball. Well, out of necessity is what you're saying. Yeah, correct. In terms of the economics of football right. is what I'm getting at. I mean, yeah. you know, this just just was not a a gauge of talent. This was also a, a simple matter of logistics. Yep. You had spots to fill. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Yeah, so I don't really think it was, well, if we beef up the offense, we have a better chance to win slash lose games. No, I think there was just more of a youth movement on the defensive side of the ball. Look at the secondary. A lot of those guys were recently drafted, and even some of the guys at the linebacker position and up front. So your nucleus, your core is on manageable rookie contracts. The offense wasn't structured the same way. So that really would be my response. I, I think we're thinking a little too much into it in terms of the mental games that perhaps Dable and Joe Shane were playing. Let's head back to the phone lines. Randolph is in New Jersey joining us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Randolph? Hi, guys. You know I love you guys. You know that. You know I've called But before. here comes the but. <laughs> yes. There's the but. Yes. I haven't been able to sleep since that second day of the draft, okay? Now, there's a methodology of drafting. And the methodology, of course, you go by your scouts. But the methodology also is it's a game. It's a game. So if everybody thinks a guy stinks and you think he's great, you don't draft him high because you can get him later. And I remember a story about the Steelers and the 49ers who, who drafted a guy who, who, who knew about a guy that no one else knew about. And they knew he was going to be good. And they drafted him late because they knew no one else knew about him, and they could get him late, and they got him late. Now, let's talk about Robinson. Robinson was rated by our lads and PFF, fourth, fifth, sixth free agent draft pick. You can't draft him in the second round. It's insanity to draft him in the second round. He's 5'8", 177 pounds. How many 5'8", 177 pounds players are there in the NFL? Very, very few. So you could have gotten it. Now, I'm saying don't get him. You could have gotten him in the fourth round, 
and maybe, maybe the third round, although I would have waited to the fourth if you really liked them, but maybe the third round. But to draft him in the second round is borderline insane. We don't have a lot of time left, but I'm going to ask you, are you 100% sure that the Chiefs and Bills, from which the Giants' new offensive brain trust came from and lost similar styles of wide receivers, are you sure they were not going to take him in the second round? Are you 100% well, sure? I, were you in their draft I heard rooms? That. I heard that Kansas City, someone said Kansas City might take it. I'm not buying it. I'm not well, you don't it. have to buy it. You were not in those draft rooms, so unfortunately you don't have the right answer. Yeah, you, just, you don't have the 100 percentage to go by. And it, it reminds me, Randolph, your argument is very similar to people who go back in 2019 and say that the Giants could have waited to draft Daniel Jones. We just we don't know what other teams were thinking. Perhaps they could right. have, but perhaps they couldn't. I mean, so it's really it's no difference from that standpoint. I'll give you a better one. When the Giants drafted Phil Sims, everybody in the universe thought they were insane. But as it turned out, Bill Walsh wanted him. Nobody knew that. Well, but Bill Walsh yeah. wanted him, and the Giants took him. Okay? Because if well, you want a guy, you get him when you can get him. That's it. Well, there's two things. Number one, a quarterback is different than everybody else. But there is a corollary to this idea of what I just said. And the corollary is you never fall in love with a guy. You lose him, you lose him. Big deal. But everyone had this guy fourth, fifth, and sixth round. I mean, yeah, could I guarantee you Kansas City wouldn't have taken him? No, I can't guarantee you that. But why did, why did every service have this guy fourth and fifth round if he was so good? Because they're services, and they're not pro personnel people. That's why. Well, and the other thing is, and Randolph, we're going to let you go on that note. College personnel people. Call. Let me correct myself. College personnel Well, people. the other thing that I think is important to add, and I've said this to a variety of people that have called up, and we have, by the way, never said on this show that Wondell Robinson is a guarantee and he's going to the Hall no, of Fame. No, okay, So, you know, I don't want to make it sound like we're putting this kid on a pedestal. But we have said that while you may have read somebody rank him elsewhere, a team sometimes ups the value of a player based on how they're going to utilize them. And we have been emphasizing a big theme this offseason, correct, is the scheme getting guys out into open space. So I think the Giants' logic was the way we're going to use Wondell Robinson is very different than how perhaps another team that maybe was considering waiting for him a little bit later on in the draft. And that's how you see all of a sudden a fluctuation because in their estimation, he's second round talent because of how they're going to utilize him within the scheme. And I just think that that shouldn't be overlooked, that that's going to vary from team to team. All right, that is going to wrap up the latest edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Certainly appreciate everybody for tuning in. Today's episode, part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast will be up and running again tomorrow for a new edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live at noon Eastern. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday and always stay locked to Giants.com as we'll speak to you on Thursday right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one.